Well, we're looking this morning at Ephesians chapter 1, verses 18 to 23, and I invite you, if you have a, a Bible uh, with you, to turn to those pages or follow on the screens behind me. Uh, we are, in fact, looking, we've been looking at this chapter, Ephesians chapter 1, since the end of August, and we're coming now to the very last part of this series, and the title for the series is Our Identity in God's Eternity, and the title for this morning is Jesus, Our Highest aim. Jesus our highest aim. And so I invite you to follow along as uh, we read from Ephesians chapter 1, starting at verse um, 18. This is the end of Paul's, one of, of Paul's first prayer, his apostolic prayer in Ephesians. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at the right hand of God in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Gracious Father, we thank you that your word is eternal. Oh, our thoughts and our lives are so fleeting and can be so fickle, but we thank you for the eternal promises of Jesus Christ. We thank you for the solidity and certainty of your word. We wish now to be gathered around your word and to hear, Father, what you wish to say to us, and so would you apply your word this morning to our hearts and to our lives through Jesus Christ. Amen. In her address to NYU upon receiving her honorary doctorate from that university, uh, Taylor Swift sums up so very well the cultural moment in which we find ourselves today and which we've been exploring together uh, in this sermon series and in Ephesians chapter 1. When was the last time you heard a quote from Taylor Swift in a sermon? Well, here we go at the beginning. She says in these words, capturing this cultural moment so well around our obsession for personal identity and finding it. We are so many things, she says all the time, and I know it can be overwhelming figuring out who to be. It's totally up to you. I also have some terrifying news. It's totally up to you. And, you know, she, she says this so well and so eloquently uh, and so, in such a heartfelt manner, and I think a, a, for herself a very authentic manner, 
And it captures for us the reality that we live in our society right now of the great pressures around us to identify ourselves, find our own meaning, create our own stories, develop our own language for who we are and how we see the world around us that is uh, on the horizontal plane. But also she says in this quote, she alludes to in this quote, the kind of fragility and vulnerability and difficulty that this modern quest uh, can lead us to, that there's this possibility of, 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 of not finding yourself, as it were, or finding yourself, as it were, and not really being satisfied or liking what you find. And the cruel irony of the world in which we live today in this modern time, I think, is that it's never been more important for us to know who we are, but it's also never been, I think, more difficult. We are these beings who, who need stories in our lives, who need narratives in our lives, understand who we are. We look to our parents, we look to our grandparents, we look to our families, we look to the future of our lives, to the past stories of our lives. But the key thing that is missing in um, our modern quest for our identity and purpose and meaning is really that sense of looking up to God as we live in a time where transcendence, the existence of God, the, pers the personal nature of God is often shunned or forgotten. Peter Lightheart writes about personal identity, and he says, personal identity um, cannot be anchored concretely without transcendence. And so I'd like us to consider just in these verses at the end of Ephesians, at the end of this six-part series on our identity in God's eternity, I'd like us to consider Jesus, our highest aim. I'd like us to consider for our lives what it means to have Jesus as the central aim in our lives and I'll invite us to walk through these few verses under the following categories. Number one is just one point but has three sub-points. I always seem to do that. But the first point is God's incomparable power. And we'll look under that point. We'll look at resurrection power in Jesus, exalted power of Jesus, beneficial power from Jesus. And then we'll look at the last point, the second point, uh, we'll look at our identity in God's eternity as we've learned a few things about that over the last little while. The first thing, though, God's incomparable power. Remember, these verses are in the context of Paul's apostolic prayer to the church in Ephesus, and he is praying for them something very specific and something very concrete. He's praying at the end of this prayer that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you may see, and there's a few things he wants them to see, and the last thing he wants them to see is the incomparably great power for us who believe. The power is the same as the mighty strength that we see in a moment working in Christ. But Paul wants the Ephesian church in the context in which they live, in, in, the, in the financial powers of Ephesus, the cultural situation of Ephesus, the, 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 the crowds crying how great Artemis of the Ephesians is and how wonderful that Greek God is, say the Ephesians in that time so loudly and so clearly, and you could hear that cry how great Artemis is echoing through that ancient city. 
Paul wants to say to them and speak to them. He wants them to know about God's incomparably great power. What does that mean for God's power to be incomparably great? The ESV has the translation exceedingly great. That is Paul saying he wants them to know that God's power is beyond our ability of uh, expression in human language. God's power is beyond our ability to comprehend with our own mind and heart and human thinking. I was working this week and a notification came up. I usually have all those notifications silence. Maybe you throughout your day get 10,000 notifications from different things. Anyway, I saw one of them came up and SpaceX was launching their rocket. Did anybody watch that rocket launch this week? Well, I watched it for about five minutes, and it was an incredible sight, you know? This, this, this thing just launched right up from, you know, Florida to basically outer space, and they had close-up cameras on the side of the rocket showing all the, all the fire and fuel and explosion and power that was shooting this rocket up into space. And... As we think about God's incomparable power, Paul wants us to realize that we should think about the strongest thing that we can think about in the world around us, and God's power is beyond that, is greater than that. Paul says, Paul, he talks the word about, about God's strength in the next part of this sentence. He's talking about God's strength, that God's strength, he wants us to know, is a strength that can overcome, that that can prevail, that God's strength is one that conquers, that God's strength is full of ability to overcome those things that we think are impossible, that there is nothing that can stand its ground against God's strength, that God's strength is a mighty force to which nothing at all in the whole world can, can bump it, can, can make it impassable, can, can move it around. And Paul uses not only incomparable and strength, but he also uses the word mighty, talking about God's power. That is that there is God, he wants us to think about God's power as power in action, not just an idea or a concept of God's power up in God's mind somewhere eternally, but this is a, a, a force that we see in action. We're talking about the ocean, the greatness, the movement of God's might and power. That this is the eternal God who spoke and there was creation from nothing. And we see in the middle of Isaiah chapter 40, which I quoted last week in a different part of Isaiah chapter 40, expresses this so well and so meaningfully, how Isaiah is, is speaking to God's people and wants them to understand the nature of God's power. And in verse 12 of verse 40, he compares God's power to creation and the things we see around us in the world, asking questions like we heard read in Job that uh, who has held the dust of the earth in a basket? And, and, and Isaiah compares the knowledge of the world to God's knowledge. How much greater is God's knowledge and wisdom? Who can instruct the Lord God? Now God is greater than all the nations of the world. The nations of the world are like a drop in the bucket. How we saw even a few months ago the invasion in, in, in part of Europe of another country, and how strong that country looked, and how powerful they looked, and how organized they looked, and how we've seen now a few months later the weakening of that country and the uh, impending downfall 
of its rulers. And we see God compared to an idol in, in, in Isaiah chapter 40. Uh, and, and how idols are, 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 are dead, how they're, they're wooden, they're not moving, but God is the living God. And so we see this power of God described by Paul in Ephesians, wanting us to know this incomparable power of God. And he said it's the power of God for us who believe. And what Paul is reminding, I think, the Christians in Ephesus is, look, Christian salvation, the, the, the fact that you might call yourself a Christian and see yourselves uh, as born again, uh, engrafted into Jesus Christ, the true and living vine, Christian salvation is a demonstration of God's power in us. That a Christian, one who has faith in Jesus Christ and has surrendered their life to Him and has has the assurance of forgiveness of sins and the hope of eternal life. This, a Christian is described by Paul in, 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 in Corinthians as a new creation. It's something only God can do. The only one who can create is God. The power of God at work in us is exceeding, is incomparable, and is great. Well, the power in Ephesus was around financial, often power, uh, commerce power. The power of God we're talking about is, is greater than that. How often can you describe in your life a time when money has ever loved you back? The power in Ephesus is a class power. The power of God draws his people together across different classes and across every line. Paul wants us to understand this prayer, and I know I'm spending too long, but uh, maybe on this very first phrase, but if we can just dwell here a little bit longer and realize as we apply this to our own lives that Paul is not praying for the church in Ephesus for more power. He's not praying they need more power, that God's power is not sufficient. <laughs> He's praying that they would know God's power is at work He's praying they would know the life rearranging, the, the sin freeing, the freedom giving, the foundational power of God, that they would know it for them as a church. He's inviting them, I think, in Ephesus, and I think he's inviting us. I hope we hear this invitation. Not that there'd be more of God's power, that we know His power, that Jesus Christ would be our highest aim. And Paul gives three examples of uh, the incomparable, incomparable, that's a tongue twister, the incomparable power of God. He gives three examples or three directions in the remaining verses. And if I could just take each one just very briefly, we hear next about we have the incomparable peril. We have the <laughs> oh, okay, five times fast. The incomparable power of God. Uh, then the first example we have is the resurrection power in Jesus. We read these verses. It's the power He exerted when He raised Christ from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly realms. Uh, he exerted. What's the first part? We we'll look at this. He exerted Him when He raised Christ 
from the Why is it that Paul chooses that example of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead as an example of God's incomparably great power? Why not choose, I don't know, creation? I mean, why not choose some miracle story from Elijah or Elisha, a floating axe head or some other, why not choose the Exodus story of God making a way across the, you know, the, the Red Sea when, when Pharaoh was chasing God's people and they thought they were at the very end of their, their life. They were, in a way, an image, an embodiment, an example, a metaphor for what the power of sin and Satan do to the Christian. Corner them. Alienate them. Press up against them. Why is it that Paul chooses uh, doesn't choose any of those incredible other, or even the miracles of Jesus to talk about God's incomparably great power. <laughs> oh. I'm going to ask you guys to say that with me. Um, he chooses instead the example of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Why is that? Because death is the last enemy. Death seems so final to us. Death has a terrible power, a terrible uh, completeness to it. Psalm 116 and verse 3 says, The cords of death entangled me, the grave engulfed me, I was overcome by distress. Have you ever been near someone who has been close to death or who has died and seen how final it is or seems? Death is that bitter, ruthless, relentless enemy that each of us, of course, will face. And we can postpone all kinds of things in our lives, but ultimately and finally, we will face death. And Paul wants us to know here that God has done the incredible, that God has done the most amazing thing. He wants us to remember that Easter morning when the stone was rolled away and the women went in looking for Jesus dead to anoint his body with more spices because they knew he was definitely dead and that he was going to be in that tomb forever. And Paul wants us to remember that that Easter morning, that Easter morning, they found Jesus risen from the dead. He wasn't just sick. He wasn't just they didn't do CPR on him and bring him back to life. He was totally dead. His heart not beating. And the living God Almighty, the creator of heaven and earth, raised him up by the power through his Holy Spirit, raised him up from the dead. Wow. And we say, wow, that must have been really hard for God to raise someone from the dead. That must have been the hardest thing God has ever done, raised Jesus. It wasn't. For the living God, it might have been just the touch of his little finger. So great is God's power. And he raises Jesus up from the grave to become, we read in Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 14, the one who would destroy him who holds the power of death, even Satan himself. And so we're meant to be encouraged Paul wants us to know this resurrection power in Jesus Christ for your life and for my life. Romans chapter 6. Dead to sin and alive in Christ, for if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him 
in a resurrection like his. The power of sin is no longer final and death is no longer final for the Christian. Have you surrendered your own life to Jesus? Are you thinking about the claims of Christianity this morning? Are you in a philosophical mindset? I'm so glad that you are. Maybe this is your first or second time in church and you're just thinking about all this and haven't thought about it for a long time. So glad you're doing that. As you are, would you please consider in all the philosophical views of the world, consider death, its finality, your own death, and who you will see, what you will see, what you will be thinking in those last days, and will you consider turning your life to him who is the resurrection and the life? There's nothing in our lives as we build and live in this life, as we have our identities at times stolen from us, as we have our identities robbed from us through trial, through difficulty, through loss of job, through broken relationships. There is nothing that the Lord God Almighty cannot raise and bring to new life through His power. So the incomparable, incomparable power of God, the resurrection power in Jesus, and second point here of the first point is the exalted power of Jesus, the exalted power of Jesus. Paul wants us to know God's power, and remember, he has seated him, that is Jesus, at the right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. Jesus is exalted in power over all. He is sitting at the right hand uh, of the Father in the heavenly realms. This is an indication for us to understand uh, that Jesus himself rules with might and authority, that he uh, is in a place of government and power over heaven and earth, seated, his work is done at the right hand of the Father, the throne of God in the heavenly realms. Um, he, is a, he, he, he holds all authority. God has placed him there. God has set him there. And uh, this is, a, this is a, uh, an allusion, this verse, to Psalm 110, which is, uh, which if you remember Psalm 110 talks about the Lord says, sit at my right hand until I've made your enemies a footstool. And this is a prediction, a foreshadowing of the exaltation of Jesus Christ to govern all creation, all the universe made real in Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Anointed One. And that Psalm 110 is alluded to in the New Testament 30 times. This idea of Christ reigning and being his enemies as a footstool is alluded to all throughout the New Testament. Paul is praying that we might know this. Of course, it's a contrast to the dominion, to the government, to the authority of Adam, when he has given dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air, and how Adam's dominion is, is limited, how, it is, uh, how it, is, it is truncated. And we see that, uh, how in ways, you know, we today, we, 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 we pollute, we exploit the earth, we 
We don't treat God's creation with the love and care and stewardship that, that God calls us to. And so, Christ's dominion is, is seen as, as we see Adam as our own stewardship over creation is so limited and so faulty and so broken. We see Christ as a dominion and, and a power that is eternal, unlimited. We see Jesus seated at the right hand of the Father in glory and in power. And Paul says, I want you to remember he is seated there far above all rule and power and authority far above, that are the things of this world and this earth and the spiritual universe. And then there is Jesus, high above all. He is far above all rule, it says, authority, power, dominion, every name uh, in this age and the age to come. Jesus is Lord above every empire, every dynasty, every government, every nation, every ruler, Paul is saying. And Paul New world history, all many things that had come before that first century. Paul had read those things and had known those things. Jesus is Lord over, over history, over good, over evil, over angels, over enemies, over demons, over, over depression, over, over the devil himself. And I think Paul wants to invite us, and I hope you'll feel invited to ask yourself this question, if Jesus is the Lord over all of these things in heaven and on earth, in time past and time future, is Jesus also Lord over the course of your life? Is he Lord over who you see yourself as, over who we as a church see ourselves as? Is Jesus Lord over our identity and over our self-understanding? We, in many ways, you know, live in a world where we experience being despised or rejected or hurt by different things, but Jesus, Jesus reigns eternal. We're often uh, tied up in sin and brokenness, and we're often tied up in this inward turn of sin that Luther talks about, but Jesus reigns eternal, the perfect Lord and Savior, the one we can trust with our lives. How do you see your life being surrendered and living under the one who, but we read in Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 9, is crowned with glory and honor. Well, we see the resurrection power in Jesus. We see the exalted power of Jesus. Nothing can separate us from him. And we see the third example Paul uses is the beneficial power from Jesus, beneficial power from Jesus. And we read these things um, in verse 22. And God placed all things under his feet, that is the feet of Jesus, and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, and the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. The fullness of him who fills everything 
in every way. What we see here, the beneficial power from Jesus that God has ordained and that God has set up, that God has placed all things under His feet, yes, and appointed Him to be head, it says, over everything. And then we have that little word, for the church. There's a, there's a climax here to Paul's prayer. There's, there's, a, there's a high point here to Paul's prayer. That Christ is, is the one who is seated at the right hand of the Father, exalted above all things, Lord over all the material universe, the heavenly realms over everything, the Lord of glory and power. And the strange thing here is Paul says there's a beneficial purpose to this position of Jesus is for the church, head over everything for the church, that Christ reigns over all powers in the world, over all his enemies, over every power of death and sin in order that he might safeguard, bless, hold in uh, his hands as the good shepherd, his church, his people, that he might bless us that we might know His name, that we might hear Him when He calls, that we might know His protection and His love and His blessing as we read about Him as the Good Shepherd in John chapter 10. He protects us and loves us with an intimacy. We hear Jesus promising in Matthew 28, I am with you always to the end of the age. We hear in Isaiah, his promises foreshadowed that no weapon formed against them shall stand. We see in Romans chapter 8 and 29 that all of these powers, that, that nothing will separate us from the love of God in Jesus Christ. The purpose, the beneficial purpose of God setting Jesus in this exalted resurrection power is for our benefit. And we see here, friends, this beautiful truth, this beautiful promise on which we can base our lives and our, our thinking and we can base our relationships and we can base, I hope, our identities. As Jesus talks about the one who hears his words as the one who's built their, their lives, their house upon a rock. And we, we learn here that, that, this, that, that we cannot in a way know ourselves fully or being known fully all alone over here, but it's in the context of his chosen people, in the context of the beauty and fragility of his church, his people, his body, the ones he loves so intimately that we may be known by God and know ourselves even more. Sinclair Ferguson writes about this, and I want to share this quote with you about the beauty and wonderfulness of this, these promises. Here then is the glorious description of Christ with His people, Creator and conquering Lord, Head of the church, filled with the fullness of God, filling all things and ruling all things for the sake of His body, which is His fullness. The church is the community which, uh, which in whom God's fullness dwells, now indwells, filling it, as it were, with His presence, flooding it with His grace, conforming it to His image until it is filled with his likeness. Have you found safety here? Have you found meaning here in his church, in 
the church of Jesus Christ. All of this is already done. His resurrection is accomplished. His as a, as a exaltation is happening now, is currently now, and he reigns over everything for the church, even as we speak. Can I wrap up the last six weeks in three minutes? Four minutes, five minutes. Okay, six minutes. No. <laughs> God's incomparably great power. What a power. What a Savior. What a Lord. You can trust Him. You can base your life on Him. The second point this morning is just reminding us about our identity in God's eternity. Our identity in God's eternity. I'd like to say just a few things about this as we close. And some of these are reminders of stuff we've looked at. Can I talk about lies we believe about ourselves? cultural challenges to identity and how Christians receive a new identity. Really briefly, lies we believe about ourselves. One of the biggest lies we believe about ourselves in our modern age is that we can define ourselves. If you think you can define yourself, your future, your meaning, your purpose, your worldview, your hopes, your dreams, your relationship choices, uh, if you think you can define yourself uh, completely or most deeply than you are living in a lie. The truth of the human condition as revealed in Scripture is that you and I, that we as human people are in deep need of a rescue, <laughs> that we are people in need of an intervention from above, that we are in need of salvation, something that, 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 that is given, something that God does. We cannot define ourselves. And so all of those things that, 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 that may build a person, where you may find your personhood and all of that's connected in that, um, we, cannot, we cannot create that meaningfully, eternally ourselves. We are in need of a rescue from the power of sin and death that affects all of us. Second lie that we believe about ourselves is that identity theft is permanent. That is, if you, say, lose a job or a relationship breakdown or maybe a spiritual situation where you feel always you are not good enough, not worthy, um, you know, must be alone, must be alienated. Uh, those are some of, the, the, some, of the, some of the words the devil can, can put in our mind and hearts. Whatever may steal your identity, your sense of, being a child of God, loved by God, adopted by the Father, that, that, that a lie is that that's a permanent thing, and it's not, because what's permanent is God's power made known in Jesus Christ, the risen Lord, and He's able to overcome and transform everything in our lives for His good and for His purposes. Second thing about our identity is cultural challenges to identity. You may remember we've talked a lot about the modern self, about the main uh, modus operandi for the modern self being expressive individualism. Just remember that, that that's a thing we're up against all the time, that our deepest, truest, most reliable sources for self-understanding society will tell us come from within, when in fact they come from who Jesus is, from who God says that we are. And the second big thing we haven't talked about much in this series is challenges to identity is, I want to just 
two seconds, the new theology of the body, which is the new moral revolution that we're, that's underway right now in the Western world anyway, and which is tied to expressive individualism, but is creating, you'll see around us, a new set of languages, a new set of speaking about the body, about relationships, about our desires, about intimacy, about what's most meaningful. And Pastor Bill's been talking in the evening about a Christian response to that. And as we close, I hope we can just be reminded that Christians, as Christians, we receive a new identity. Number one, we remember we belong first and foremost to Jesus Christ, that He has died for us, that we've been purchased by His blood, that we are no longer ours but His, that we're united to Christ as Christians. John chapter 15, abiding in Christ who is the vine, that's where that's where we rest, our union is with Christ. We are citizens of heaven, citizens of, citizens of this world, of course, living. It's going to be pilgrims in this world, but citizens of heaven. Read in Philippians chapter 3 and verse 2. Our final home is there, and so we're always living as a way between two worlds, but our final home and destination is heaven. And as we close, two takeaways about our identity in God's eternity Friends, can we leave here today, can we continue on with our worship knowing this, that you are known by God, that no one else in the world knows you better than God. If you're a young person, if you're elderly, if you're in the middle of your life, God, is, God knows you better than you know yourself. Your hopes, your dreams, your insecurities, your vulnerabilities, God knows these things and loves you. Psalm 139, you know, God knowing us in our mother's wombs. So would you just rest in that? The pressure can be off. Through Jesus Christ, God is for you. He knows you and has expressed to us His love in Jesus. And finally, a second takeaway. Remember that making Jesus our highest aim gives our lives a new and better story. That we all need a story for our lives. We all need a a narrative for our lives. We all need a, a story that is meaningful and that gives us purpose and that gives us hope and that, 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 is, that is true. That's why Netflix and all the streaming stuff is so unbelievably popular. It's they tell a great narrative, a great story. Well, here's the best story there is, the truest story there is. The, the, the echo that we feel in other narratives and other stories that give us are, are just echoes of this greater story. And making Jesus our highest aim, our highest purpose, gives us that, that new identity, that new story in which we are invited to live. Since then, in Colossians chapter 3, you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died. Do you know you're dead? You died. You're dead. Your old self has died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. Would you set everything in your life there and set everything in your life at this table, His body broken for us, His blood poured out? Let us pray. Gracious Father, thank you so very much for Jesus Christ. Will you make him anew for us? 
the first in our lives, our highest joy, our highest aim, in all of the demands upon our lives in different ways, in all of the uncertainties and all the joys, we wish, Father, to be found in him, to rejoice in him, to trust him for everything.